Well, thank you, Daniel, and uh, good morning, everyone. It's certainly a privilege to be here with you and to uh, join together in the ministry of Bethany Community Church. Daniel, bless you, Whitney. Uh, it's, it's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. How are you this morning? You're not too lively yet. Can you give me a little feedback here? Good morning. There you go. Okay. It's good to see you. I want to ask you a question. Have you heard about LeBron James's new pad? The Cleveland Cavaliers basketball superstar, 2003, bought a $2.1 million mansion south of Cleveland, knocked it down so he could use the lot. Now, the new, uh, the new dimensions of the place uh, that he built, uh, 35,440 feet, a six-car garage, a master bedrooms, 59 by 40, with a two-story walk-in closet. Uh, in the mall area of the house is a barber shop, a bowling alley, sports bar, and a recording studio. And to top it off, a very substantial aquarium. Now those are just a few of the amenities. But let me tell you a secret today. Lean in. Here it is. Compared to the place we're going, LeBron's pad is a dump. We are headed for a place that is magnificent. It is the place that Jesus is preparing for us. In John 14 he said, I go and prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. And this is the place we're going to be examining today from the Word of God. Need to remember there is a historical context for, these, uh, for this book. The Apostle John is writing from the island of Patmos. It is about 95 AD. And the seven churches of Asia that are the subject of chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation are under the boot of the Roman Emperor Domitian. The heat is on. Difficulty is in their midst. And there is pressure on them to leave the Christian faith for Roman pagan worship. And in the midst of this suffering, God is pointing them to heaven. He is pointing them to a city greater than Rome. He is pointing them to an empire in the future that will far exceed anything that they could imagine. It will be a comfort to them, a blessing to them. It's something that will help them keep going. And for us today, also people who suffer in certain ways, who know the tribulations of this world, who know what it is like, perhaps, in some cases, to be rejected by family because of Christ, or to be the Bible thumper at work, or to be going through any sort of suffering. The anticipation of heaven is a wonderful and comforting uh, reality. So today, I would invite you to contemplate this question with me, why is it that we should look forward uh, to the city above? Why is it that we should anticipate heaven? And specifically now, uh, let's, let's turn that a little bit. What about that place? 
is so great? What about it is an improvement over uh, what we already are experiencing? If you will, turn with me to Revelation chapter 1, uh, excuse me, chapter 21 and verse 9. And there we're going to see the first movement in the passage what is it that's so great about the heavenly state? What is it that we look forward to in the future? The first thing about heaven that is so wonderful about this city above is that it reflects the very glory of its maker. Verses 9 through 21. The text says here, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Now, remember in this context what has already taken place. Uh, there has been the rapture of the church. God has come and those who have been prepared uh, by personal faith in Jesus Christ, uh, who have been saved through his blood, they have been taken to heaven. Then there has been the seven-year uh, great tribulation period, followed by the second coming of Christ, then a 1,000-year rule of Christ. And as the book is developing here, this 1,000-year rule of Christ has now given way to eternity. This is still future for us, but this is the sequence of John's vision. And after the millennial kingdom has given way to the future, we find the people of God in heaven, and we find their eternal living place. And this is one of the same angels who had announced the great tribulation, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and uh, to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, the new Jerusalem. In the passage before, it speaks of John's vision of this city coming down out of heaven, resting, I think, finally upon the earth. And we find that heaven is. Uh, not a netherworld, it is not a place where we float around aimlessly, but it is a place which is physical and earthly, without sin and without pain, but one in which we will be somewhat familiar. And in this context, he begins a detailed description. It has come down out of heaven from God. In verse 11, he said, it shone with the glory of God. What is God's glory? The best I can tell is that God's glory is intrinsic divine light. That means it's light that is natural to him. It's part of him. And it shines forth uh, as an expression of all of his combined attributes. So when we say God is holy, God is just, God is good, God is loving, God is gracious, and so on, there are probably two dozen attributes of God that are mentioned in the Bible. Uh, that is expressed in this holy light that shines forth from him. His glory, his significance is shown in this radiance that comes from his person. 
So this whole city, the new Jerusalem, come down out of heaven, our eternal abiding place is that of glorious beauty. It's shown with the glory of God. It must be that this place reflects God's own glory so that it will be bright. It will be stunningly beautiful in appearance. He goes on here, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper. My understanding of jasper is that it is a a whitish stone, and shiny. It's on the light side of the spectrum of gems. But this is as clear as crystal. One of the things that we will see as uh, we go into this passage on heaven is that everything in heaven is pure. Uh, when we uh, take these gems and we, if we were able to get out the impurities, they would be uh, just as clear as can be. And that is the state of, of these jewels here. And with this city, there is a great high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates. And on the gates were written the names of the tribes of Israel. There were 12 Israelite tribes who had descended from the patriarch Jacob. His sons were 12 Twelve tribes developed out of them. And even in the eternal state, Israel is on God's mind. Now those today that would say God has rejected Israel and somehow replaced Israel with the church and that Israel has no future, I think would have a bit of a problem with this text. Because always in the mind of God, always in the mind of God's people throughout eternity will be Israel, his faithfulness to them. God sent the Messiah, Jesus, for the deliverance of Israel, also the church. But Israel is included in this. They are remembered on these gates. There are three gates on each side of the city, north, south, east, and west. And then... The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So here we find very clearly the representatives of the church. These 12 who followed Jesus very closely, Judas excluded, Matthias included, according to Acts chapter 1. Uh, these are those who faithfully served the Lord, many of them died as martyrs. These also are remembered. So some suggest that there will be uh, some kind of separation between the church and Israel throughout all eternity. Exactly what that would be is not clear, but they are both uh, very certainly represented in the mind of God, and they will be in our minds as time passes. And the angel who talked with me had a measuring rod to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out in a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with its rod and found it to be, my translation says, 
12,000 stadia in length. And that's, by my calculations, somewhere between 1,400, 1,500 miles. And there are three dimensions. There is the length, the width, and the height. So you imagine this place, uh, if you were able to do so, 1,500 miles would take us a good portion across the United States, and you'd make it just uh, east and west and, and quite a way north and south as well. This is a vast city. There's room for a lot of people. I wonder why he emphasizes the third dimension. Why could that be? You, you look up in this beautiful room, and uh, there's a little bit of sense of awe, but imagine if you were in a room that went 1,500 miles up. What's that about? Is this a glorious expanse to show the majesty of God? Now, here's something entirely speculative, and I do say speculative. Is it possible that we could operate in another dimension during that time as well? I don't know. I, I'm a little bit hesitant on that one. Some think it's possible. Uh, I, I do not know. But this is a fantastic place. Large, beautiful, captivating in every way. He measured its wall. And the wall, it says here, is somewhere between 150 and 200 feet I think that's the thickness, not the height. Now think of these dimensions, 1,500 miles up in the air, and, uh, and so uh, really a little wall 200 feet high would not be large at all. So this is, this is maybe the thickness, and it is looking at the absolute security of this place. Remember our original audience, insecured, badgered persecuted, but they're going to a place far greater than anything in the Roman Empire that dominates them, to a place of utter safety, a place that they can anticipate with excitement, a place that's going to help them make it through the difficulties of this life. Now John, for some reason, tells us that uh, that's according to human measurements, which is also the measurements of angels. I have no more comment on that. But he measured this wall and it had that thickness. And the wall was made of jasper, which is a greenish stone. It's a light green texture. So we begin now to form our vision of the city. It's beautiful in its brilliance. Its wall is going to have a pure greenish to it. It was decorated with every kind of precious stone. And now the apostle lists a, a large number of stones. Rather than to go over all of these, I would like to say this, that the spectrum begins on the light side of, uh, of the color spectrum with a jasper, a kind of a whitish stone, and it moves uh, from there through yellow, greenish yellow, uh, red, bluish, ends up on the other end of the spectrum. So all of these precious stones uh, are represented there in the city. 
goes down through them, Burl Topaz, Chrysoprase, and so on. And then in verse 21, uh, the 12 gates were 12 pearls. You've heard about those pearly gates. They're really there. They're really there. Now, St. Peter is not there. St. Peter has nothing to do with anybody getting in heaven. Jesus Christ will be there, and if you have a right relationship with him, you'll be there too. But these gates are wonderful. Just imagine that. <laughs> a pearl, a large enough to be on a gate on a city, this magnificent God, the creator, has made a wonderful place for us. You wonder what Jesus has been doing all these years. One of the things is that his creative energies have been exerted to prepare this place for us. And there's that street of pure gold like transparent glass. There is no impurity in heaven. Uh, no impurity uh, in the jewels. No impurity in the stones. No impurity in, in the people who are there. But God has made this place ready for those who have become overcomers, who have kept on keeping on in the midst of the difficulties of life. I'm reminded here of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Now, Bunyan was a 17th century Puritan pastor who wrote that book as a discipleship tract for his people. Uh, it was a difficult culture for them to live in as well, one that was being degraded already during the time of his ministry, and he wanted for them to stay the course. You may know the story. It starts out with the main character, Pilgrim, who comes into a personal relationship with Christ. And he sets out on a journey for the celestial city, the one that we have described this morning. It is a beautiful city uh, that, is, that is stunning in his mind, but it's off in the distance. Before he is even able to leave, his wife forsakes him, not sharing in his commitment to the Lord. If you're going there, she says, you'll be going by yourself. And he heads off. It is not an easy trip at all. In fact, he is soon depressed and falls into the slough of Despond, a place of depression, a swamp where he is, he is taken by the discouragements of life. But others come along and they help him and they encourage him and he's out of that. And then a bit farther down the way he comes to the Vanity Fair where all of the enticements of the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, words from John, by the way, the same one that wrote this prophecy, those things threatened to take him off of the way, but he got himself free from the fetters of the vanity fair, and after what seemed a while came successfully to the celestial city. Can you relate to the pilgrim? I think the first century people, had they been able to read that book, could have said, yes, we relate to that. Because they too could be bogged down in the world. They too 
because they were losing their businesses because of Christ in all likelihood boycotted, uh, because they were losing their families for Christ. We know also in the first century people lost their mates for Christ. You can read 1 Corinthians 7 on that. They had to relate to a price being paid on the way to the city. But it would be worth it, you see, and that's the point. It would be worth it once they had arrived. So today, uh, let's remember this. Keep on keeping on. Stick with it. You may be ready to throw in the towel. Don't do it. If you're not in any trouble today, don't worry. You'll be in it before long. For in this world you shall have tribulation. But keep on. Keep on. And do look forward to the beauty of this place. God wants us to do this. God puts motivations before us because it is difficult in this world. He wants us to look forward to that. I can make it through anything because that's ahead. I'm going to get there. I'm going to get up there and be with the Lord. I'm going to the place he's prepared for me. So we look forward to this place uh, because it shares in the brilliance of God. Well, there's another reason that we look forward to heaven as well. We look forward to heaven today because there... The Lamb of God and God the Father will be central to everything that takes place. We look forward to this future state because there, God the Father and God the Son will always get the recognition that is due them. Verses 22 through 27 of this chapter. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Now here is something very important, isn't it? Uh, to have a worship center. It's hard to know exactly why he mentions this temple. Uh, these people had some familiarity with Jewish backgrounds. I don't think they were all Jewish or even primarily Jewish. But temples at least were a type of a worship center in almost every culture. But this one does not need such a place because the Father and the Lamb are there. I believe the suggestion is this. We don't need a temple for God to be um, manifested in a certain place. We do not need a place that we have to go to because he is going to be ever available to us. There will be easy access to God the Father and God the Son Whenever it is desired, they are its temple. They abide, the believers abide in him in a certain sense. And the city does not need a sun or a moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it its light and the lamb is its lamp. I think what he is suggesting here really in this whole development of this part of the passage is that we will not need anything. Uh, we will not need a worship center. We will not need any of the sorts of things that uh, we use today. There will be no electric bills. God provides everything for us. His beauty illuminates 
this whole magnificent city. It says here the nations will walk by the light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Now this says that relationships in heaven are going to be similar to what they are today. There will be large people groups present there. All people who have trusted in Christ, all people who are walking with him, all having been relieved of their sin burdens, but still recognizable human beings and perhaps recognizable in their racial and ethnic identities. That would be a suggestion of Revelation chapter 5 as well. And so uh, there is this, this relationship, interrelationship of people with people and people with God in the eternal state. And these gates of the city, remember we talked about them before in the passage above, the gates are never shut. Because there is no danger. No danger. Wouldn't it be wonderful? It will be wonderful, won't it, to be in that world where there is no danger. No concern at all. The gates are wide open because everybody that's made it into eternity can go in and out as they please, freely and safely. Now this is an important thing when you think of how the Roman hordes, the centurions, those mighty armies had just overrun cities, crushed them, annihilated city after city. But here's a city where no human army could ever touch the people of God. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter into it. Now, if you happen to hear the message yesterday, there's all of this wonderful material in chapter 21, verses 1 through 7, and then the last verse is an exclusion. It says there, cowards, those who turn away from Christ, who don't stand for him, uh, will be excluded from this place. Now we have yet another exclusion. Even though there are many people included here, we find that there are some who are not there. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those who names, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb of God is the judge of the world. He is the potential savior of all who will trust in him, and he is the judge of those who reject his work on the cross. And he is going to be the one who will be in charge of admittance to heaven. In order to have admittance to heaven, one must have her name in the book of life. One must have his name recorded. Now, this is a bit of a metaphor, I think. But the point of it is one must trust in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ keeps track of who has made this decision. And when that decision is made, a positive record is kept such that when we leave this life by death, we're able to pass into heaven having made a right relationship with him. So here is a place now where God, the Son, and God the Father 
are central. Something very important took place in your service today uh, before I came up, and that is we celebrated the Lord's Supper. Uh, we had these elements, didn't we? And uh, we, we thought about this, and for a good period of time, we thought upon the implications of the bread, of the breaking of the bread, and on the cup, on that shed blood which turns away the wrath of God from those who receive Christ. And those thoughts captivated us. Uh, Jesus and the cross were our focus. Now when we get to heaven, that's the way it'll be all the time. Isn't that a great thing? It's a great thing. Because uh, in that day, we're going to be free of our pain. We're going to be free of our concerns. We're going to be focusing on Jesus. In fact, I would like you to say something that is going to make you feel pretty good, I think. I want you to say this. In heaven, it will be great to be free of me. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. In heaven, it will be great to be free of me. That was faint. Could you say it again? Say, in heaven, it will be great to be free of me. See, the biggest problem you have on this earth is you. The greatest problem I have on this earth is me. I'm a sinner. I'm hung up. I'm always wanting to have my way. But in heaven, we will be free of our sin burden and we'll be able to focus on God and on Jesus in ways we never have and our enjoyment of life will be enhanced so wonderfully there. Heaven will not be boring. Are you kidding me? To have these eternally wonderful persons before us all the time and to cultivate those relationships for hundreds and thousands of years. Never a boring moment. Our minds will be free of sin. Now our minds are fallen, our wills are fallen, our consciences are fallen, but they will all be renewed and we will be enjoying these individuals and fellowshipping throughout eternity with people from among the nations. Action, excitement, invigoration in all our capacities. What a wonderful place. It would probably make sense to really start thinking about getting ourselves out of the center of our lives now, wouldn't it? That's one of our biggest challenges and one of, the, uh, one of the limitations we have in our ability to freely and fully serve God is that we have us in the center. I saw an interesting book uh, the other day, about two weeks ago, I instantly sent for it uh, uh, in the mail the, the uh, title of the book is, I Told Me So. I Told Me So. The subtitle, Self-Deception in Spiritual Formation. So the, the part is, you, you say, say you do a survey. And the survey says, are you smarter than the average person? 
and about 80% of the people say yes. Come on now, are you awake? All right. Or probably, if uh, the men were to answer, am I better than the uh, average Christian husband, most would say, well, yeah. And the answer is, well, no. Average is average. So we tend to deceive ourselves. Let's just say today, sometime today, go before the Lord and say, Lord, Point out to me the areas where I am self-centered, where my world centers on me, where it's all about me, me, and not others, and not you, not the Lamb, not the Father. This is something we can do to begin to prepare ourselves for heaven. Well, there's one more thing that, uh, that God wants us to see here in this passage today as we begin to look forward to this. Uh, we have seen, haven't we, that this is a place that has the brilliance of God himself. What a beautiful place. It is a place where God the Father and God the Son will be central to everything. It's also a place of great intimacy. That's the third thing that we want to see today. It's a place of great intimacy, a place where relationships will be so very close. Chapter 22, verse 1 through verse 5. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, how is it possible for this river to flow from the throne? Perhaps there is a dual throne here. I'm just trying to construct this the best I can. This is a plausibility that the Father and Son are co-regents. Uh, they are reigning together on this throne, and perhaps the throne straddles the river, and the river flows from under the throne. It is the river of life. Remember, for John now, water is life. Water is, is a representation of eternal life. The woman at the well, I have water that you know not of. The water, John 7, that springs up out of your heart. And later in this passage, as Pastor Daniel has already read today, the invitation is, come, drink of the water, the water of life. This comes down the middle of the great uh, street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Now, how can that be if this is in heaven? Perhaps we could say it this way, that God creates, but God also maintains, and that this is maintenance rather than creation, so that the welfare of heaven, even in the eternal state, will be in the hands of God the Father and God the Son. They not only make it, but they maintain it. Everything always dependent on them. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. When did the curse take place? It took place in the Garden of Eden. 
Here's, here's how it worked. God made a perfect place, didn't he? He exerted all of his creative abilities there. Uh, all, uh, he, he put his mind to work and he made uh, all the wonderful stars and the planets and all the vegetation and he, and he made uh, the water, the bodies of water. And then at the end of creation, the apex of his creation was the human being, Adam. And out of Adam, he created a wonderful helper, Eve. And they together were given a commandment, I want you to stay here in the garden and represent me faithfully. I want you to till the garden. I want you to take care of it. But man, even in his unfallen state, lasted in faithfulness probably less than one day and disobeyed and fell. The first Adam failed in his stewardship. But now, do you see what's happening here? We're coming all the way down the line to the end of history, the beginning of history, man's failure. We come all the way down to the end of history, the Lamb's success. The second Adam has done this. He has successfully brought a great number of people, millions of people, into the state where they will serve the Lord faithfully forever and ever. He has made, fail, he has made success out of failure, and he's taken this devastation and made it into a place of ecstasy for his people. Now there is grace and grace and grace being exercised. There will be no longer any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. There's what we're going to do. There's how eternity is going to be occupied in service of the Lord, serving him. No boredom, no lying around, no retirement. You say, I don't like to serve, really. Remember I told me so? Where are you? Uh, are you better or worse than average? And 90% will say, well, you know, I'm better than average in serving. No, you're not. Serving. Come on now, come on. All right. We're, we will be serving up there. Serving the Lord. Being occupied with him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Just think of this that Jesus will be accessible to us. Now there is distance, isn't there? We can't see him today. This is one of our struggles. But when we get to heaven, there will be this face-to-face -face contact with him. A wonderful intimacy will be available in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And his name will be on their foreheads. There will be ownership. The name on the forehead. This takes us back in the book of Revelation. Everybody in the book of Revelation has a mark of ownership upon them. Either they take the mark of the beast, the servant of the devil, and therefore apostatize, turn away, and perish forever. Or they have upon them the mark of ownership of Jesus Christ. And these in heaven 
are those who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ and have served him and have kept on and have overcome. They have conquered. They've had the victory. They have not been the cowards who have turned back under pressure. These now enjoy this fellowship. There will be no night. There will be no need of a lamp or of light or the sun. For the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. Those who keep on keeping on. Those who overcome. Those who stay with Christ will reign forever and ever. The Roman Empire, great empire, but really just a blink of the eye in the history of the world. Rome fell. Rome's crushed. Even though it will be revived in the future, it will be crushed again under the feet of the Messiah. And it is his kingdom that will go on and on and on through all eternity. And we, we who trust in him, will somehow miraculously be reigning with him as well by grace. Look forward to heaven as a place of intimacy. My dad was not a real touchy-feely, tender guy, but I, I remember some wonderful times with him where I was little, three or four years old, and one thing I could depend on, my dad would be reading the paper. I could get up in his lap, and I'd say, read the comics. Read me the comics, Dad. Uh, he was from the generation that called it the funny paper. But there they were, and, and, and as I would sit in his lap, he would read to me. You know, that's what heaven's all about. It's about that kind of intimacy with God, that daddy relationship, that love, that accessibility to him. There will be intimacy there, the likes of which we do not ever experience on this earth. Don't miss out. Get to the city. You can cultivate intimacy now, but just, just accept this. You, you never get quite where you want to be. Uh, we have our sin, don't we? So we live a confessional life before the Lord, and we try to restore this, and, and we connect with him uh, through the word and, and prayer and so on, but it'll never be quite what we want it to be. So we look forward. We look forward to a better day. This day is not the best day. This day is not the best day. There's a better day. There's a day coming when God is going to open heaven to his saints. We have so much to look forward to. Now I encourage you, turn your eyes heavenward, away from your troubles. Yes, you have to be responsible. You don't have to be obsessed with this world. Obsession with this world is nothing but frustration. Remember this, the words of John, this world passes away in its lusts, but he who does the will of God shall abide forever. 1 John 2.17. I want to invite anybody who may be here for the first time today and perhaps who has not trusted in Christ uh, to try to speak the gospel to you. The gospel is simple. It is this, uh, because of Adam's sin, God has charged us uh, as a human race with sin. 
Not only have we been charged with Adam's sin, but we have been charged with our own sins, which we have committed. God sent forth his son, Jesus Christ, as a sin substitute for us, so that God placed the sins of the world upon Jesus, and Jesus took the brunt of those sins and the punishment for those sins and the death for those sins upon the cross. And then God raised him from the dead uh, as uh, is signifying his acceptance of the sacrifice. So all that God leaves for us to do is to trust in Christ to accept this and then we will be on our way to the celestial city. And it will not be necessarily an easy ride, but God will help us all the way until we arrive at this wonderful place which we anticipate. And uh, to God be the glory for that. Amen.